Once upon a time, two brothers would revolutionize the sound of music, including that of a musician whose career would span over 75 years. And in an unlikely turn of events, a stable boy would attempt to follow in his footsteps. I'll tell you all about it on today's episode of A Farrier's Tale. Welcome back to the show, folks. I'm your host, Cody Harris. And I'm his brother, Aaron Harris. Yes, Aaron is in the studio with me today. It's always easier to talk to a face than just talk to the computer screen. So thank you for being here. Yep, no problem. This is a story that I've been wanting to tell for a very long time. It's been in the works for well over a year now. Oh, way too long. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Actually, though, uh, before we get into it, I want to um, sort of set the stage. So the play hasn't started yet. I want to uh, take you behind the scenes and give you some background information that I think will make this story more enjoyable later on. And I should also say before we start that I'm going to be trying to weave in three distinct storylines. So spoiler it's, alert. It's going to, well, yeah. So it's going to be messy, but hopefully, uh, I don't know. Hopefully they just weave together nicely at the end. Hopefully it all makes sense. Like a a rope. Yep. Of, of three <laughs> chords. <laughs> Here comes chord number one. <laughs> All right, we're going to start. So we're going to go way back. Uh, 1887's the year. We're going to Paris, France. And I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Henry Summer. And uh, he's 22 years old. Nice to meet you, Henry. <laughs> and he's just uh, graduated from the Paris Conservatory. And he has joined the music of the Republican Guard, where he has obtained a soloist position as a clarinetist. Um, and he also continued his career with other bands and orchestras, uh, including the Paris Opera. So quite the accomplished musician. Uh, but that's not the only thing that makes this guy cool. He's not only interested in playing music, but he's also interested and wants to understand the mechanics behind the sound of music. He wants to understand how it's created. And he became self-taught uh, regarding the mechanics of reeds. So um, he's a clarinetist, and um, the reed is what makes the sound. So he was self-taught, and he developed some techniques for refining his uh, own reeds. And in the year 1885, uh, he's now 29, uh, he started his own manufacturing company and started professionally producing uh, reeds and mouthpieces for the clarinet. Now, Henry also had a little brother. His name was Alexander, and he was a pretty good musician in his own right. He moved to the U.S. and played in a variety of orchestras, including that of Boston, Philadelphia, and he also played first clarinet with the New York Philharmonic. Jumping ahead a couple of years, Henry Selmer began to um, up his game in the manufacturing world, and in 1898, he produced his very first uh, clarinet. Now, this is where it gets interesting. This is the good part here. The year is 1904. Setting... St. Louis, Missouri, USA. Something mm-hmm. big, something pretty, pretty big went down. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess I'll pose this as a question, Aaron. What was going on in St. Louis, nineteen oh four? John Deere was founded. <laughs> yeah. uh, could be. I'm not read up on my history of John Deere. <laughs> I bet it was. 
good answer. But um, the answer I was looking for, World's Fair, 1904 in St. Louis. So pretty big happenings. And uh, I have an article here pulled up. Here's some of the things that were um, on display or on ex- ex- Expo, Exposition. Is that right? Exposition there? Yeah, I think Exposition. Okay. Yeah. So um, here we go. First contraption on the list, the wireless telephony. So, uh, wow, wireless telephone. We have the uh, teleautograph was there. Any guesses on that? Teleautograph. Yeah. So it would write uh, by Not wire. Bad. Not bad. Pretty good. Early fax machine. There we go. Uh, okay. Some early forms of radiation therapy was introduced um, by Dr. Niels Finson. Uh, got a Nobel Prize for that. So good job, Finson. Yeah, X-ray machine mm-hmm. was on display. And, uh, oh, cool. Here we go. The electric streetcar made its debut. Very neat. Oh, this is the good part. The 1904 World's Fair hosted the first ever airship contest. So, yeah, <laughs> airplane races over the river. Wow. The winner of the race got $100,000. But actually, uh, wow. nobody won because nobody finished it, unfortunately. But So, wait, no, no one finished? Did they all just crash in the water? Or? Yeah, I presume so. Just says no one finished. So yeah, they crashed. Yeah. Wow, a hundred thousand dollars. That had to be a lot of money at that time too. <laughs> yeah, it was risky business at that time. Anyhow, guess who showed up at the World's Fair? John Deere. <laughs> Maybe he was there. I don't know. No, our our buddy Alexander Selmer showed up, oh. and uh, he had in tote one of his brother's clarinets. And according to Summer's website, uh, the acoustic qualities and perfect craftsmanship of the clarinet was rewarded with a gold medal. At the uh, World's Fair. There's no context for that provided here. But in my imagination, this is how it went down. So like the uh, the organizers of the fair got together. They're trying to figure out how to draw a big crowd. And one was like, oh, dude, airplane races. We're going to have a huge turnout for this. The crowds didn't show up, and they're like, oh, man, uh, like attendance is down. All right, time for plan B. Uh, it's time to break in the uh, clarinet building contest. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's how it worked. <laughs> yeah. If we can't have this airship race, then, well, at least we can do the clarinet <laughs> thing. Yeah, so, yeah, again, and I'm not sure of the context surrounding it, but, no, somewhere got some recognition. And because of that, uh, Alexander opened up a music shop on the 86th Street in Manhattan, uh, where he sold his brother's instruments that were made in uh, Paris. So, wow. so uh, do you know what else was uh, extremely popular in 1904 in America? Yeah, the plow, as we know it today. <laughs> you know who invented that? <laughs> John Deere. Okay, uh, I cannot confirm or deny that, <laughs> but uh, the Olympics were going on here. The very first Olympics to ever be held in the United States was 1904, oh. uh, but that that wasn't the answer I was looking for either. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. what was super popular in the uh, United States was uh, wood frame hotels. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Uh Oh, I got you. I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing. Smooth. Like butter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, there was over 1,200 
wood frame hotels in the country at that time, and two-thirds of which were financed by transportation companies. Reason for that being, if uh, you lived in the cities back in those days, odds are the sewer system didn't work as intended, you were heating with wood, or probably coal, I suppose, and then cooking over wood. And so uh, cities weren't the nicest place to be. They're pretty uh, polluted. So if you could afford it uh, during the summer months, particularly, you would go off on a summer holiday, go to your family cottage, maybe go stay at a resort for the summertime. And so transportation saw this as an opportunity and said, and they thought if we could create destinations out in uh, the beautiful countryside, you know, we could make a lot of money selling tickets to these uh, travelers. So anyhow, that was what was going on in a few years earlier 1887, such an establishment was built on Mackinac Island. That was Grand Hotel. It cost just over uh, $300,000 to build it and just over 90 days. And it was simple but elegant. Uh, When it was brand new, the only thing that was painted was its front porch. But even though it was at this beautiful place on Mackinac Island, there's other places there. There's other resorts on the island other hotels that were older and more well-established than it. So there was nothing that really uh, made it truly stand out and be unique from the rest of the resorts in the Great Lakes area. Until three years later, um, they got a new manager, a man by the name of James Hayes. And he has been noted for stating that um, he wanted to hire more musicians than any other resort in the Great Lakes. And uh, he did. Agents were sent out across Michigan and surrounding states. It's uh, recorded that many members of the Minneapolis Symphony came up to the hotel during the summer times and played music. And uh, so Grand Hotel discovered a way to make it unique from all the other places surrounding it, uh, that being music. When the guests first arrived, music would be playing and then for different special events and parties going on. So you have to remember back in this time that if you wanted to hear music, you had to play it yourself. And if you weren't a good musician, then, you know, that, oh, that's terrible. So, or you had to go and listen to uh, professionals play music. I don't know. Music has just become such a, for me, anyhow, such a normal part of everyday life. I guess it must have been pretty magical to be able to stay at some place as nice as that hotel and uh, be surrounded by music all the time. Right. And it's interesting just that the fact that they, you know, this was something funded by the transportation companies because you think of transportation, well, nowadays you use it to get to and from work or whatever, but you wouldn't do that back in those times because you wouldn't work in a different city or different, you know, mm. you, you're pretty local. Right, right. And everyone's just getting around, walking around, maybe a buggy ride here and there but that's about it so to go go on a a ship or something or on a train the only thing you can do is go on vacation so this was this whole lifestyle that they did then at that Mm -hmm. time that must have been just a crazy awesome experience (laughs) yeah also another fun fact that the vanderbilts actually purchased one of the transportation companies that built the hotel so for a short while the vanderbilt family had a share in the grand hotel so that's not cool I can't remember which one of the brothers it was, but they eventually sold the railroad company and they purchased uh, P.T. Barnum's Hypodrome out in wherever that was at. New York, was that? I don't know. Anyhow, they renamed it Madison Square Garden, so I guess it turned out okay for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is another thing. Yeah, building upon what we've been discussing about music, 
Another thing that went on the hotel in the early 1890s was they added a ballroom, uh, the terrace room as they call it. It became a tradition every evening at 9.30 p.m. They would open the doors and the music would be playing and they would be dancing until midnight. So pretty cool. All righty, we need to get back to the Summer Bros and uh, continue on with some backstory on those guys. Between the years 1915 and 1930, a very young instrument experienced an extraordinary frenzy of popularity in the United States. It was a time that would become known as the saxophone craze. And it was only natural that uh, Henry Summer would take notes and become interested. And he proposed his first saxophone in 1922. And from his long experience in producing clarinets, uh, I guess he was pretty good at it. And at that time, he had about 50 people working for him. And he produced uh, approximately 30 saxophones per month. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. In the year 1929, I think, is when that really started to take off for Henry. Um, He purchased the Adolf Saxophone Workshops. And uh, I guess I'm going to ask you another question here. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't. Yeah, I should have given you some homework to read up on this sort of things. But anyhow, I'll just let you guess. Yeah, Do you know who Adolf is? Actually, that's not his real name. His real name is uh, Antoine. I can't give you his last name because then you know who this guy is. But anyway. well, what, what is Adolf known for? Or Antoine? Apparently, for uh, having a saxophone shop. Uh, oh yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But any, yeah. Other than that, he, he is the man accredited for inventing the saxophone. Wow. His full name was Adolf Joseph Sax, and so the uh, saxophone was obviously named after him. Wow. And uh, Henry Selmer became his successor, so. And he integrated, um, you know, Adolf's personal know-how into um, his own production. So the workers jumped up to like 175, and they're producing like 300 instruments every month. And another thing that really solidified the brand's reputation as producing world-class instruments is that 80% of the instruments produced were exported. So became a player in the global market. Hmm. So, yeah, that's it. That's the end of the backstage tour. So that's all the information, the background Mm. information we're going to go over. So uh, The stage has been set. Yeah. Act one begins. In the year 1929, on August 24th, Arthur Eugene Harris was born to James and Missy Harris. Although you wouldn't know him as Arthur, that's for sure. <laughs> right, well, I just called him Grandpa, but... Most people knew him as Gene. Yeah. He didn't even... It's funny, he didn't even go by his middle name, which was Eugene. He just shortened that to Gene. Well, I think actually he did go by Eugene initially... And it just sort of became Gene because yeah, it, we need a one syllable. One nickname. syllable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's already not your real name. Let's keep it as simple as possible. So, Gene Harris was <clears> what he was known as. But now that that is sorted, we're stopping it again. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't planning on talking about that. I'm sort of lost here. <laughs> 
Like most kids going to... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, like most school-aged children, uh, Grandpa was introduced to music and the different types of instruments when he was quite young. And uh, one occasion I remember him telling this story about when he was, uh, I don't know, just in grade school anyhow. And it was the introduction music class and... The teacher brought in uh, the, some of the upper-level class uh, kids to demonstrate the instruments for everyone. And he said the, they played a, a variety of instruments. And then at the end of it, the instructor turned around and asked all the little kids what they would like to play. Grandpa said that he wanted to play the thing with the three buttons on it, uh, being the trumpet. And, but it turns out so did every other kid in his class. And so the instructor ended up telling him, was like, oh, well, we already got enough trumpets. So it, he gave him a French horn to play. Because I guess it was sort of similar, it had three buttons on it, so <laughs> so I don't know if he's trying to. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> so what was Grandpa's thought process? I just want the simplest thing. Do you I, think? No, I mean everyone likes trumpets; they're cool. It's, I mean, every if you ask a little kid what type of horn do you want to play, it's mm. always a trumpet. So I think it's. I always assumed it was because it must be easy, because you only got three things to push. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> he didn't go into the details. But anyhow, he did say he hated the French horn, though. He said you could play every note on it and not have to move your fingers at all. So it was difficult for him to play, so he didn't like it. And I'm not sure how much time passed, probably not too long after, he heard one of his schoolmates playing a saxophone, a little girl playing a saxophone. He says the instant he heard it and saw it, he knew that that was the instrument for him. That's what he wanted to play. And he said that the school ended up letting him take one home over the summer, which is pretty crazy. And um, anyhow, he learned it over the summer, he said, by ear, and uh, he never looked back. So <laughs> he continued to play throughout high school. Um, he played at the school dances. In the summer times, he would go over to Houghton Lake and play at uh, some dance halls over there with his buddies. And uh, sort of, I don't know, he just f- fell in love with it, I guess. He, um, I remember one story he told, which I don't think, I don't know if this happened often or if this was just one uh, it happened one time, but his dad, James, worked a second shift at the car factories in Flint, and he'd get off late around 10, 30, 11 o'clock or something like that. Grandpa was playing downtown Flint. I believe it was at a community center. He said that uh, he could recall his dad coming in at the very end when he got off of work, and he could hear the last couple songs that he would play on his horn, <laughs> and then they would uh, walk home for, together afterwards. So, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a cool memory Grandpa had that I thought was pretty neat. Yeah. I think I remember him saying that 14, he started playing professionally when he was 14 years old. Does that sound right? That might have been when he first got his like, first paid gig, yeah. Because yeah, he was playing right. at Houghton Lake. When you go up to Houghton Lake for the summer, he get paid. In fact, that was the first place he ever saw a DJ. And he's, he said the guy came in with a crate of... Uh, of uh, Phonographs? No, not phonographs. What are they called? Records. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Came in with a uh, case of records. He would charge the the facility the same amount that the band would charge, except he would keep all the money himself. Whereas with the band, they'd have to split it up with everyone. So anyhow, he never he uh, never liked DJs. So because of that. So he would have been in school late thirties, early forties, and what was else was going on in the U.S. At that time, uh, they just sort of 
uh, emerging from the Great Depression, and there was a new sense of enthusiasm for the future. And that was reflected in the music of that time. In the late 30s and early 40s, the popularity of big bands basically soared. Music by Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Benny Goodman, the Dorsey Brothers, Glenn Miller seemed to capture the essence of young America at that time. And swing music would go so far as to account for 60% of record sales. So that was the world that Grandpa grew up in, and that was the, the music that he played. Grandpa began his journey mastering saxophone performance. The Summer family continued mastering the production of the instrument itself. In the late 30s, Henry Selmer's son-in-law became the director of productions and uh, sort of revolutionized the modern production of saxophones with the development of, quote, balanced action. And basically, it was just another take on how to assemble the springs and all that on the, on the saxophone. They said it created uh, perfect mechanical equilibrium. I'm not for sure about all the technicalities of it, but I do know if you look at a saxophone pre-1930s, you will be able, anyone will look at it and say, hey, that's sort of look funky looking. But if you look at any saxophone produced by Selmer after the 1930s, um, you could easily mistake it for a modern day saxophone. Hmm. So it sounds like they were the pioneers in this. Yeah. This. Yeah. So basically the birth of the modern saxophone. So, with the 40s, or actually, I guess, in uh, France's case, the late 30s, came uh, World War II. And so, as it can be expected, uh, production dropped drastically during the war. And um, by the end of it, uh, there's only like 80 workers uh, within the company. So, Paris itself was invaded uh, by the Germans on June 14th, 1940. And it wasn't until after the Allied invasions in Normandy four years later uh, that the French resistance in Paris launched an uprising in the summer and they were able to seize the police headquarters and some other government buildings. Um, And it wasn't until, I think, just a few days later, here we go, it's August uh, 25th, 1944, that French and American troops um, liberated the, the city. And so, remarkably... Just two years after the end of the war, Summer bounced back, and they were producing over 250 instruments uh, per month. And it was in that year, 1947, in the month of September, that saxophone number 34829 was produced, a balanced action tenor saxophone. Little did, I'm sure, anyone know, uh, but particularly... 18-year-old grandpa know that that saxophone will one day become his. At the age of 20 years old or so, Grandpa was drafted into the Korean War and went to basic training. Uh, it was near Chicago. I can't remember the, uh, the name of the fort that he was stationed at, but it was, any, it was right on the shores of Lake Michigan. 
And I can remember him recalling that some of his uh, uh, fellow recruits would get frostbites mm. on the long marches out during the winter months. And he did go over to Korea, and he was a, a guard at a prisoner of war camp. And I remember him telling me that there were two camps, um, one with uh, hostile uh, prisoners of war and then one with more uh, friendly and compliant. And fortunately, he was uh, a guard at the, the camp with the friendly and compliant prisoners. I remember him telling me that there was an airstrip nearby, and I guess the thing to do to st- uh, stay in shape was to go down and jog laps around the airstrip. He'd be the first one there and the last one to leave. And he said he could outrun them all. So (laughs) (laughs) all that to say, uh, the point I wanted to make was that on the way home, um, after his time there, all the way home, he said he played, uh, played music. So somehow they, the military had rustled up some instruments and they formed a small little band, and uh, they played music all the way home in celebration. So. Yeah, he was up on the bridge of the boat, and like 2,500 GIs, I remember he said it was, yeah, all looking, paying attention and listening to his little show. He had a, like, a little band mm-hmm. they'd formed in the military there, like maybe four or five people or so, yeah. and... They were just jamming the whole way. That must have been a blast for him. You could that <laughs> was one memory understood. he really remembered in detail that uh, I think yeah. really stuck out with amongst all the amazing things that he did. So Yeah, for sure. And as a like little bonus, because he was entertaining the troops, he got to eat dinner with all the officers on the boat and uh, sit at real tables with napkins and whatnot. <laughs> I can recall him telling me that uh, he didn't tell or he didn't call his parents beforehand when he was coming home. And he said he just rode the train to the station in Flint. And it was only a few blocks away from his house. And that he just walked home and walked in the back door while his mom was cooking dinner and said hi. So, yeah, so it's funny, like recalling all these uh, stories about grandpa. Mm-hmm. You know, grandpa really only remembered a fraction of, of the things that he did in his life. Really, if you want to know all the details, there's no one better to go to than Ethel Harris, his wife, as we knew her grandma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we got the opportunity to sit down and chat with her a couple months back about uh, Grandpa's music career after Korea. And one of the things that we talked about that day was that Grandpa attended Ferris State College. He went on the GI Bill, I think is what they called it. Oh, okay. So the government for, helped paid for his school. Right. All right. Yeah. And then he did go to school for music, right? So I think it was in business. Oh. More business than really music. But wow! And so he just got his music experience just playing with local bands and friends and right. Okay. But there was a lot of bands he played with: Grand Rapids, Muskegon. Uh, Traverse City, he played with at Central, mm. and uh, and a lot of the bands had names mm-hmm. like Jive at Five mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Donahue Quartet. He played with them when they wrote that song about U.S. 131 Highway. He said, Drive careful, boy, she's a mean 131. Thank you. 
played in Florida at uh, a big resort for really rich people. I wasn't allowed to go in. So Aunt Sue and I stayed in the parking lot in the car. Anyway, another time, he played in Flint, big party. They used to be really big. And the guy at the door says, you're not dressed good enough to go in here either. So um, I didn't go in there either. Oh, no. And I, I've got a list out there of like one year he played with 20 different bands. Oh, really? And But he also played at the Grand Hotel. Mm-hmm. He played there probably because he went to Korea with Robert Gillespie. And Robert Gillespie was head of the horses on Mackinac Island. But Gene got to go up to Mackinac Island to play with the different bands, the the man that was in in head of the Grand Hotel Music, mm-hmm. his son, Gene played for his wedding. And then oh, he really? eventually took over for his dad. And uh Gene got to go up there with the Tommy Dorsey band and big band from Grand Rapids. And one time he was up there for three months playing with the Grand Hotel Orchestra. And so he played every day. And um, Did you go up there with him? Oh, yes, yes. We stayed at a little hotel that the Grand Hotel owned just down the couple blocks. So that was nice because we had a place to stay, just mm-hmm. walk over to the Grand Hotel. Another time he was up there 18 days in October before they closed okay. for the season. And so we stayed up there that whole time. And um, it was nice because Gene Allen, some of the time, he was doing horses for three years up there while we were up there. Mm-hmm. Gene My playing dad, music. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh, fun times up there. Even after our conversation with Grandma, there was one piece of information that I was really hoping we'd come away with that we didn't, and it was how exactly Grandpa acquired his Selmer saxophone. So, I decided to do a little investigation myself. Right, because you have Grandpa's saxophone now. Mm-hmm. Yep, so I was able to take photographs of the different markings and write down its serial number. And I was able to send that to the Henry Selmer Paris Music Company, which is still operating in Paris, France today. And it was a little bit tricky because when I first got on their website, it was all in French. But fortunately, if you didn't know this, most foreign websites have a translate button, so you can translate all into English. So that was helpful. But uh, anyhow, a simple phone call was not in order. So I had to send them an email and uh, I was able to get a reply um, a few days later. Nice. I was hoping that they might have some information on where in the United States it was sent to and perhaps what time. And so in a few days, I got a response back. Dear Cody, instrument manufactured by our factory in France in September 1947 and sold in that same time period to our U.S. distributor. No more information in our records, unfortunately best regards. And uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce this guy's name because <laughs> I will not be able to properly. <laughs> Very French name. Cool name. 
Um, so that's sort of a dead end, but sort of exciting because I got to at least find out the year and what month it was made. Hmm. Remember that uh, music shop that I said Alexander Selmer set up on 83rd Street in Manhattan? I do. Well, uh, as turns out, uh, that's still there today as well. Really? Yeah, the um, facility is known as Con Selmer now, and so I thought perhaps if they are still the um, the U.S. distributor for all Selmer instruments, that they might have some more information of when the saxophone came through and uh, what music store went to, or perhaps if it was picked up by an individual. But uh, unfortunately, after sending them an email, I can pronounce this guy, Kevin, he sent me an email back, and they don't have any historical records there, or at least accounting information that goes back that many years, So, which I guess makes sense. I guess you wouldn't want to hang on to those for you know, 70 plus years. So, <laughs> so the trail ran cold. Mm. However... In the case of the saxophone, I was able to find a very old reed that had some very old cardboard packaging on it. And I know it was old because it said made in the USA. (laughs) Anyhow, on the packaging on the reed, it said Music Center, 714 North Saginaw Street, Flint, Michigan. And so I thought, well, maybe this might be the music store that Grandpa purchased it from. And uh, again, I don't know why they'd be hanging on to accounting information that goes back to the 40s. But anyhow, it did offer a glimmer of hopes. Perhaps they knew something. So um, with no other contact information, I thought the best thing to do would be to look it up on Google Maps. And it was an actual address. And I punched in the numbers. And uh, what popped up was a very old and a very large brick building, pretty uh, ornate. Hmm. And also, in the front window, there was a great big sign that said, uh, for lease. Oh. And so, at, at some point, uh, between when Grandpa had purchased that reed and, and now, the company has gone out of business. So, the mystery of when and where Grandpa purchased his saxophone remains just that. A mystery? For now. Being reminded of all the people that Grandpa has played music with and how long his music career was and just uh, the level that he was at, it makes the fact that we were able to play with him on a, num- on a number of occasions all the more, I don't know, inspiring maybe, I guess? Honoring? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was special. Yeah. Really. Hmm. Because, uh, well, like I always tell people, you never really knew the level of talent grandpa played with and was surrounded with and had the opportunity to perform with because he, he wouldn't talk about that. (laughs) I remember having to, you know, find out through grandma or through a little bio about grandpa on the back of a CD, you know, the, the big names he played with, that's the only way you would find it out. So (laughs) (laughs) Louis Armstrong, you know, he played with those greats of his time. So from Grand Hotel and all the other big stages he performed on, you know, the last few years of his life, he was still performing. And, you know, his career musically was like over 75 years Actually, it was his last performance I actually got to 
play with him. Mm. We were downtown, Big Rapids here, his hometown, just a little section of town called Pocket Park. Yeah, when we got to play with him, it was, it was neat because you could tell all the the people from that era when he would play, they would just be taken back mm. and, and be like, wow, I haven't heard this in a long time. Yeah, that was what made Grandpa unique, that he he outlived most of his peers from his era. And when you heard him play, it was like traveling back in time. You weren't listening to a musician that was trying to replicate the sounds of yesteryear. You were listening to uh, a musician from another era playing music like he always had. He was a versatile player and blended in well with everyone around him. But when it came time... He could play a solo like no one else. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. He had a it was a, a classic warm sound that was unmistakably his. And I don't know, it's just like his horn had a voice. So Yeah. And, a, and that's one thing we need to get clear to. We talk about him playing from another era, and that was his specialty. But l- let's not forget, he was extremely talented, mm-hmm. period. And that's something that, just can't be denied yeah. when you hear him play. And you touched on it earlier, um, but I think the one thing that stands out about Grandpa more than anything else in his music, or just in life, really, that uh, just his extreme humility when it came to not talking uh, or building himself up, but always mentioning himself with great humility. And it seems like he was always speaking well of others, too. He's always building the other musicians up that were around him. So that's, uh, that quality is something that I want to emulate in my own life for sure. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and, uh, helping me out with this project. My pleasure. And, uh, also would like to, uh, say a very special thank you to grandma for sitting down with us and taking the time to share with us some of her memories. Thanks grandma. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. So I guess this is uh, curtains. Wait, no, no, it's not. This is uh, this is the mat. Wait, not matinee. What's that? <laughs> That's the play in the middle of the uh, day. What is this? Was the break intermission? No. What? <laughs> What's the break in the middle of a play? Uh, I mean, the break would be intermission. When you go to a play and watch it, they have a break halfway through. What is that called? I don't remember what that is called. But whatever that's called, that's what this is. Yeah. You have to come back for the part two, the sequel. Well, maybe. this is just part two of the conversation. Okay, that's the sequel, part two. So come back.